Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about envious evil, alarming elevators, and demonic demonstrations. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. In tonight's episode, we'll be featuring a handful of tales from our audio archive and showing a number of our radio play style productions from over the years as we prepare for our upcoming season of new full cast stories. We hope you enjoy this blast from the past as we prepare for a future of frightening original fiction. Joining us tonight to help bring our sinister stories to life is a full cast starring Alicia Pavlis, Joseph Gable, and Jesse Cornett, with supporting performances from a dozen incredible voice talents, including Brendan Dean of the popular YouTube channel Darkness Prevails, the No Sleep Podcast's Jeff Clement, and yours truly, Steve Taylor. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. 
Our first tale tonight is written by Kevin Thomas, perhaps better known by his online horror fiction handle, ScarJo. And the tale is voiced by Jesse Cornett, with supporting performances from Alyssa Carr, Otis Jiry, Jeff Clement, Evelyn Cornett, Jacob M. Keene, Brendan Dean, and yours truly, Steve Taylor. In it, a high school science teacher, desperate to gain control of an unruly and disruptive class, prepares a demonstration of ultrasound and subsonic waves, hoping it will capture their attention. Unfortunately for him, he gets the attention of more than just his students. Without further ado, I present to you Ultrasound. As a teacher, making the subject interesting was always the biggest challenge. But that was the bit of the job that I loved. And with some classes, it was really easy. Some students were just naturally interested in what made the world tick. Some got all starry-eyed at the idea of infinite universes, destructive black holes, chemical explosions, and classifying all the creepy crawlies that lived in the world. Some classes were harder to grab, though and you had to really find something to pull them in. This was even more fun to figure out, like teaching taxonomical classifications using Pokemon, or using some sci-fi to explore the ideas of space and time, or sometimes just a good old-fashioned blowing something up. Every now and then, though, I'd get a really tough group. It was even worse when it came to teaching a subject that they found especially dull. One class in particular was an unholy boiling pot of hormone-fueled disruption. I would love to say that I didn't consider them bad kids, but the inbuilt liberal apologism most teachers have hardwired into them can only take so much punishment. They all had their reasons, of course. Broken homes, runaway parents, bad areas, drugs, alcohol, or just plain learning and development needs that we didn't have the time or the funds to accommodate properly. But with all the justification in the world, it did stop every lesson with them blurring that fine line between learning and riot control. I even approached my head of year for advice and support. He was normally a man who preached the gospel of no child left behind and every child matters with religious fervor. However, even he, having provided cover teaching for the group in a pinch, simply looked at me with sunken, defeated eyes and told me, you're on your own with them, dude. The best he can offer would be to steer the school observations away from those classes and to cast a sympathetic eye over my end of your results. A token gesture that didn't stop the lessons from being a constant struggle to retain control. For instance, one kid, Jake, he took a lesson about evolution and survival of the fittest to be a personal challenge to his finely honed fighting skills. And the rest of the lesson was primarily concerned with me attempting to stop the class degenerating into a battle royale. I taught a lesson about the alkali metals, a family of metals which have a violent reaction with water. By putting a tiny pea-sized amount in a bowl of water and letting the class see it skitter around before popping with a tiny bang. This lesson was rewarded by a break-in to the chemical cupboard that night. And that was followed by a missing 100-gram block of potassium and a mysterious explosion that destroyed half the plumbing in the gym's shower block. I was out of ideas, and at the end of my tether, 
and had resigned myself to simply embracing my new role as riot officer and condemning the class to oblivion. However, I had one of those soul-searching moments and thought that, no, everyone deserves one last chance. It was my class, my subject, and damn it, I was a grown man. I would not be defeated by a bunch of foul-mouthed little jerk-offs. I checked the curriculum, and the next subject to be taught would be sound waves. Ultrasound and subsonic waves in particular. So now all I had to find was the hook to draw them in. Had I known what would happen, I would have stopped right there. But I didn't. I plowed on, trying to find some way to make the subject of sound waves that you can't hear interesting. I found plenty of experiments using ultrasound to break glass. I didn't fancy giving them any excuse to break glass. Using it to break up kidney stones. The kids knew enough about weapons, thanks. Or the way animals use it for navigation. But I didn't fancy teaching them to add horrific screeches to their Batman impressions. I'd all but given up on finding anything useful. When I stumbled across an article on scientific explanations for the paranormal based on sounds, that existed outside of normal hearing range. The article was fascinating. A scientist called Gavro had noticed that certain areas of a particular laboratory made anyone who worked there feel uneasy and scared. Some went as far as to say they'd seen ghosts and shadowy figures in that part of the lab. Few would dare work there, and fewer would dare twice. Being a man of science, the researcher rejected any supernatural claims and set up monitoring equipment around the area to investigate. What he found was that the area was a hotbed of subsonic sound waves. There were all kinds of research equipment in and around the lab, like centrifuges and auto-stirrers and incubators, all creating sound waves inaudible to the human ear, but which created a feeling of dread and terror in anyone that was subjected to them. Paranormal research critics were quick to point out that whilst subsonic waves might account for the feelings of dread, they asked how this explains the visions of ghostly and shadowy figures that were also reported in the lab. Gavreau postulated that the waves caused the front of the eyes to vibrate, and that this could distort sight, inducing visions of horrific shadow men and other tormentors. I even read that Gavreau was planning to expand his research into whether this might explain other ghost reports. For instance, the huge increase in ghost sightings during building projects like extensions to the London Underground tube lines, often blamed on disturbed graves and inappropriate plans, that may be nothing more than the subsonic waves caused by the digging machines. Yes, this was perfect. I couldn't believe my luck. It was such a simple experiment to set up in a classroom, and even the most hardened little thug gets quickly silenced when they think ghosts are in the room. Then once they're thoroughly terrified, BAM! Science. I was grinning from ear to ear at this point. I couldn't wait. For the first time ever, I was actually looking forward to the next lesson. I was so naive. I should have looked deeper. The irony is that everything that unfolded from here on out is down to the fact that I, T. 
teacher of the worst class in the country didn't do my homework. It would have been hilarious were it not for the tragedy of what was to come. I finished my lesson plan and went to bed, getting the last good night's sleep I'd ever enjoy. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The morning came, and I still had a confident spring in my step. I even treated myself to a nice coffee on the way to work. I started doing the criminal thing that you do when you think you've had a good idea and let the fantasy run away with itself. After all, I just figured out how I was going to control that class. My head of year didn't know how to do that. Maybe this would lead to a promotion. Maybe I'd be next in line for the head of department. Maybe I could include it in the book I was going to write about controlling classrooms. Maybe I'd be invited on to TV to explain how I'd turned this obnoxious class around. I knew I was getting way ahead of myself, but hey, it was a daydream for the commute. Where was the harm in letting it run a little? I got to my classroom and started setting up the equipment. They were going to be my first class of the day, so I wouldn't have to wait forever, which was lucky because at this point, I could barely contain myself. The equipment was very simple. There was going to be a basic speaker at the front of the classroom, which would be the focal point of the display. And in the back corners, I set up a couple of metal plates that were held in front of electromagnets. They were all going to be set to the same subsonic frequency that Gavreau had used, and I hoped that the acoustics of the room would amplify the effect. The class piled in and took their places. They were already starting to play up, but a couple of them were disquieted by the calm, confident look on my face. There wasn't much that gave any of their teachers cause for that kind of collected facial expression in their classes. Most had a look of barely concealed fear and trepidation, so to see me looking like a Hindu cow shook their confidence. I had to capitalize on this brief period of crumbled bravado before they collected themselves. Sound! I bellowed. What is it? My question was met with stony silence, as most of my attempts to engage with them were. Sound is a form of wave energy that for the most part, allows us to hear things. I subtly turned on the speakers to their subsonic frequency. It was at a low amplitude, so no one perceived anything yet. However, scientists are still discovering new ways that the body interacts with energy in all its forms. Every day we find new mechanisms by which the body is sensitive to energy. Every day, uncover a new way to explain the unexplainable by using rigorous scientific methods to observe, predict, experiment, and analyze. I tweaked the intensity up a few notches and saw a few of their bored expressions shift to one much less complacent. I was loving this, truly loving this. I almost didn't know whether I was getting an adrenaline rush from finally controlling this unruly class or whether the sound waves were starting to get to me too. There was a bubbling panic growing in my chest, but I was sure 
that was just down to the excitement of the position. Even if I was also being affected, at least I knew that I was in control. And if you kids really apply yourself, really buckle down and stop giving me crap, then maybe you'd be able to use science to achieve something. I paused and scanned over their increasingly distressed faces to ensure that I really had them before I went to the grand finale. Really special. I cranked the intensity of the sound wave up to full. I saw an instant shift in their demeanor. It was beautiful. A few started crying. Some hid their eyes. Some were just frantically looking around, wondering if they were the only ones and quickly seeing that they weren't. I almost started scaring myself. I looked across their terrified faces, watched them start scrambling and pleading with me and each other and God and anyone to make it stop. This started to feel like revenge rather than science. Every crappy lesson, every fight, Every interruption, every curse, every punch, and every missed piece of homework was all avenged as I watched the class descend into pure terrified panic. Then there was a shift. I don't know why I'd been slower to respond, but all of a sudden the sound waves got to me too. Then I saw what they were seeing. I understood their fear. Shadowy figures swooped and darted around the peripheries of my vision. The corners of my eyes were dancing with barely seen terrors. However, when one of the shadows appeared to dash right across the classroom, I realized I'd gone too far. And this was terrifying even for me, and I knew none of it was real. This needed to stop now before it went any further. I killed the power to all speakers. Instantly, the room was back to normal. No figures, no shadows, nothing clawing at the extremities of your vision. Just another classroom full of clearly unsettled children. I regained control of myself and calmly explained to the class exactly what had happened. We went into detail about sound waves, energy transfer, the retina, the eyes lens, the whole lot. I knew I'd way overstepped the mark and I didn't want to send a single child out until I was sure they knew that it was all an illusion, that there were no ghosts, no evil shadows, just a scientific trick of the mind. Most of the class had recovered by the time they needed to leave for their next lesson. A couple were still shaken. But I was satisfied that all they needed was a bit of a sit-down. I'd certainly knocked them down a peg or two. Amazingly, Jake even looked me right in the eye and said, Nice one, before moving on. I was in a better mood than I'd been all year. I told the head of year, and he let out a laugh so loud and appreciative that I was sure that half the surrounded classes had heard. God, I wish I'd been there. He then put his stern professional face on and said, But you really should run these kinds of things past me first. If one of the parents complains... He trailed off.
before looking at me again and letting his stern facade break into another wide, appreciative grin. I stayed on Cloud 9 until later that evening. Everything was fine until the sun went down, and it started getting a bit dark. I could have sworn I saw another shadow dart into hiding. What the hell was that? Out of the corner of my eye. The first time it happened, I was still full of bravado, thinking, I know what caused that. The pneumatic drill must be vibrating my windows just right. At that point, I actually believed myself. However, as the light continued to fade, the twilight carried on playing tricks on me. I kept seeing dancing in the shadows long after the road crews had gone home. I tried just getting an early night, but I couldn't. As soon as I felt myself drifting off, I'd see more movement in the shadows. Hard as I tried, I kept seeing the darkness moving. They kept darting around. They darted towards, away, and around me. Sometimes they looked like they were just standing there. Other times, they looked like they were ready to jump on me. My imagination was driving me wild. I couldn't take it anymore, so I bolted out, turned on all the lights, and went on the internet. Unable to think of anything more constructive, I researched a bit more about Gavro's findings. Why didn't I do this before? Gavro's scientific studies had tapered away rather rapidly after his subsonic discovery. From what I could see, they were replaced with increasingly erratic and less reliable conjecture about the nature and power of the sounds and the shadows. Most of his academic companions deserted him as he got more and more unhinged. I remembered the power I felt manipulating the class, and I remembered having to tell myself that it was just an illusion. What if Gavreau lost that grip on reality? What if he kept pushing it until he forgot the science and believed his own pranks? I was hardly comforted when I found out that his final conclusion from his last published research paper, widely discredited by all who found it, was that the sound didn't make you see ghosts. The sound lets you see ghosts that were already there, and they didn't appreciate being seen. I couldn't sleep a wink. It didn't look like any of the class did either when I saw them the next day. Saggy-eyed, drowsy, and yawning. I asked them what was up. I kept seeing the shadows, sir, said one, and many murmured in agreement. Worse, though, was that one student hadn't turned up at all. Jake was absent. Not especially unusual. A lot of the students played truant when given a chance, but something didn't sit right. I asked if any of the students had heard anything from him. One girl timidly replied, He texted me last night, sir. Said he couldn't sleep. Said he needed to find what was making the sound so he could turn it off. I just hoped he found it. I just hoped he got some sleep. 
I hoped we all would. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. For good measure, I spent the remainder of the lesson going over the science behind my little illusion again in order to try and allay their uncertainties and fears. It was almost funny. This lesson went even better than the previous one as every student was held in a rapt state of attention. The whole class clung on to my every word. They took notes, drew diagrams, asked deep and pertinent questions on and around the subject. And they even completed all their group work with nary a ripple of disruption. I understood, of course, exactly what they were doing. They were trying their very best to understand what had happened to them yesterday so that they could really try and put it behind them. I'd always considered scientists to be as brave pioneers branching out into the unknown, but looking across my students' steadily brightening faces, I saw how science could just as easily be a comforting blanket, a rational barrier against the demons of the unknown. By the end of the class, the horror of the previous day seemed to have well and truly faded and was replaced by a joking camaraderie. Kids who would normally have been at each other's throats in group sessions were working without issue. They even seemed positively friendly with each other. In a way, only a group who've experienced a shared hardship could be. It was a fantastic sight. My earlier doubts about whether I'd gone too far were still there, but to look at them working productively and peacefully with each other, it was difficult to be too concerned. Jake still played on my mind, though. I was sure he was fine. He made truancy into an art form. But his texts about needing to turn off the sound in the middle of the night still made me nervous. Yet the lesson had one last shot for my nerves in store. It concluded without issue, and concerns for Jake aside, I genuinely thought maybe I'd turned a corner with this class. I needed to be far more careful if I was going to use it with any other classes in the future, though. I had been completely unprepared for the intensity of the visions and the feelings of sheer terror. But it didn't seem to be anything that a bit of personal experimentation with the equipment couldn't refine in order to get the right level, and just looking at the quality of the work that the class had just produced, it was going to be easy to get the head of science to sign off on the experiment for further use. I was still running through these thoughts, and contemplating what modifications to try next, when, as the students were leaving, one girl asked to see me for a minute. 
In the now empty classroom, she stood, staring intently at her shoes and refusing to look me in the eye. What is it, Amy? She shifted her weight uncomfortably. Sir, did... She was having trouble formulating her question. Were the speakers on just then? When? During the lesson. No. <laughs> Why? The color drained from her face as she weakly answered. Oh, nothing. Nothing. She scuttled out of the room, clearly needing to be anywhere but in that classroom. I wanted to call after her, chase her even, in order to clarify what she meant, but I was distracted by something skittering across the room, out of the corner of my eye. I didn't get a clear look, and by the time I'd spun around to try and see, it had gone. I turned back to the corridor to shout after Amy, but she too had disappeared. Just as suddenly, her question disturbed me, and my mind returned to Jake. I used the morning break to contact the office to see if there was any word on him. Jake. Jake Tandy. Class G2. Any word from him or his parents as to where he is today? I asked the office girl in charge of monitoring attendance. She was about to answer when a gray smudge darted across the doorway to my right and pulled my attention away. I was still staring intently at the door when, out of nowhere, Richard, my head of year, stuck his head into the room and asked to borrow me for a moment. He ushered me into his office and closed the door. Jake Tandy was reported missing as of 9.30 a.m. this morning. What? By whom? His mother. When she noticed he wasn't in bed this morning, she called round a couple of his girlfriend's houses to find out if he'd snuck out there in the night. None of them had seen him. When she called to find out uh, if he was in school, we told her he wasn't here. Her next call, obviously, was to the police. Now, one of our students is officially missing. My mind was overwhelmed with questions. The playful grin that was on his face when I first told him of the demonstration was well and truly gone, replaced by an unshifting expression of grave concern. The police found Jake's phone in his room, and the final message he sent details him going to find the source of the sound. They want to know what that means. Uh, of course. Do they need a formal statement? I don't know. You can ask them yourself. They want to talk to you as soon as we're finished. Now, listen and listen carefully. I'm sure I don't have to tell you how serious the consequences of this could be if Jake doesn't turn up quickly. This experiment you ran, please tell me you first ran some basic safety tests or ran a risk assessment. How could I have been so stupid? I didn't so much as do a test run before the lesson, let alone do something as sensible as documenting a full risk assessment or investigate whether infrasound fell under the Department of Education regulations. My complete, unforgivable incompetence must have been written across my face, because before I could answer, Richard interrupted. You friggin' fool! I had to focus all my strength to not burst into tears right there in his office. 
My eyes were damp, but I maintained composure. Answer me this, and you had better answer truthfully, Richard continued. Do you have any cause for any form of concern for any of your other students? Amy, I uttered quietly, still staring at my hands to avoid revealing my increasingly watery eyes. What? I raised my head to meet his accusatory gaze. Amy Sunderland. She approached me after the class today to ask. My heart stopped. Standing over each of Richard's shoulders were two towering, shadowy figures. Through the blur of my tears, I couldn't make out even basic features. All I could see were that they were definitely human-shaped. I was frozen with dread, and a feeling of deep panic started welling up in my stomach. What? What did Amy ask? I rubbed my eyes dry in order to answer him. Once I'd cleared my sight, the figures were gone. I looked around, but there was nothing and no one else there anymore. Answer me, damn it! She she asked if I had the speakers on during today's lesson. I tried to ask her, but she she wouldn't answer me. And did you have them on? No! Right. Tell the police that. Tell them everything. I'll send them in. Richard stood up to leave and walked towards the door. I felt him stand behind me and place a reassuring hand on my shoulder. I couldn't believe how irresponsible I'd been. How reckless. I'd been so caught up in my own ambition that I hadn't taken even basic precautions, and now I was paying for it. I just hoped that Jake was all right. I knew Richard was furious with me, but feeling his protective hand on my shoulder meant that maybe there was a way to fix it all. I heard Richard outside telling the officers to head in. Wait. Richard was outside? Then whose hand was... I spun around to see an empty room. I desperately tried to contain the panic coursing through my veins. What was happening to me? It was just an illusion. Two officers entered the room. Uh, good morning. Thank you for talking with us. Now, tell me about infrasound. Through the tension, I almost laughed. Where to begin? I'd rarely seen police officers as young as the two opposite me. They lacked the authoritative confidence one would normally expect during questioning in a missing child case. The questions were meandering and unfocused, as though the officers really didn't know what they were actually trying to achieve or elicit from me. My guess was that they were rookies who had been lumped in with the dull task of closing off a dead-end lead. When a child goes missing, every lead needs to be chased, if only to protect the police force against accusations of neglect if the search failed. But Jake was a troubled kid, and I know he had been caught dealing weed to other pupils. I imagine that the officer in charge of the case 
had a stack of leads that provided far more plausible explanations as to why a kid with links to local low-level drug dealers might mysteriously go missing in the night. He wasn't going to waste his best officers chasing down a science teacher using strange noises to fill a room with ghosts. These officers were here on a glorified administrative mission, and I could see resentment in their eyes. But for their lack of experience and motivation, they were diligent nonetheless. They wanted more details about the nature of infrasound and what it could mean in the context of Jake's text, so we discussed it in some detail. I delivered a mini-science lesson about the nature of low-frequency wave energy, natural resonance, and how the retina could be fooled into seeing things that weren't there. Describing it was almost therapeutic given everything that had just happened. As I felt my grasp on reality slipping, it was good to go over the simple, rational explanations to help me regain my grip. I answered all of their questions about Jake. Apparently, all they found on Jake's home computer were a few articles about shadow people and ghosts, as well as a few research papers on unrelated medical procedures. They wanted to know if the two could be linked, but I explained that Jake's mom was a nurse in the nearby hospital, so if anyone was searching for methicillin-resistant staff or aureus treatments or subcranial hematomas or phacomulsification techniques, then it was probably her. Shadow people and U-porn, though, that sounded more like Jake. Eventually, they had no further questions. Though their theories were obviously not something I was supposed to be privy to, their relative greenness as officers meant that they let slip more than they should have when exchanging tidbits. From what I could gather, they thought that my experiment had probably spooked him, leading to a sleepless night. In his insomnia, he probably tried to sneak out to visit a girlfriend, but had fallen afoul of one of his less amiable contacts en route. There was an implication that even at 15, Jake already owed some serious people money. The officers had what they needed to close this lead. I was thanked for my help, and they left. Richard seemed visibly relieved when I explained to him everything we'd talked about. He'd clearly been driving himself crazy thinking that the cops were investigating a case of neglect at the school and that he was going to be facing legal action over inappropriate experiments being conducted in the classroom. However, although the panic had faded, his anger had not. Thin up this mess. Now! Talk to all of your students from yesterday. Find out if any of them are still having problems and fix it. Make sure they know there's nothing to worry about. If I get so much as a report of a broken night's sleep from one of their parents, then you're finished. I sent messages out to all the students and asked them to come see me as soon as possible since Richard had agreed to cover the rest of my day's classes. I interviewed them one by one, asking them what they'd seen since the experiment. Most told stories about occasional glimpses of something in the dark. One told me that he was so scared that he hadn't been able to do any of his homework. Nice try, I thought, but I kept my solemn face on. However, most had been able to nod off eventually and few complained of anything further stretching into the daytime. In fact, when really pushed, most seemed to agree that anything they had seen was just their imagination going into overdrive. Secretly, 
I had my doubts as to how many of their visions truly were imaginary, but the calmer they were, the less they were affected, and if they truly did see fewer shadows, the less they believed. I was just going to let them carry on and watch the problem solve itself. The end of the day came, and I looked over the register of the class to see who I'd managed to talk to. I'd ticked off everyone, bar two. Jake and Amy. I hadn't seen Amy since she approached me after the lesson. I hurried to the administration department to report it, but Amy had apparently been picked up by her father earlier that morning, claiming to be suffering from a massive headache. I breathed a sigh of relief. I could talk to her tomorrow, and hopefully another night's sleep would put the whole thing to bed. With Amy safe at home, the day over, and Jake still nowhere to be found, I went back to my place. I poured myself a whiskey and stood at my window, watching the sun go down over the city horizon. It was normally a beautiful sight. This view was one of the principal reasons I paid so much for this apartment, but today it held no such pleasure. The sun got lower, and I watched as the tall building shadows elongated into the evening. There was something about the way that the shadows were creeping across the streets and over the hedges and walls towards my windows that sent my heart racing. Of course it was just the angle of the sun, but for all the panic of the last two days it was difficult not to feel an almost predatory aspect of their approach. The way the shadows snaked through the trees and poured through my windows. The way the black imprints of the lamp posts and power lines created long, grasping fingers that crawled up into my room. Soon, the whole city seemed to be cloaked in a dusky twilight, and every shadow seemed to writhe and pulsate. The wind blew the trees and the shadows swayed on my walls like a cobra waiting to strike. I downed the whiskey and threw on all the lights for comfort, but there was no comfort to be had. The harsh, bright lights just turned my apartment into a patchwork of shadows. Behind the couch, behind the TV, over the cupboards, and anywhere that bright, central light couldn't reach was suddenly turned into a pool of darkness. A darkness that stared and watched and waited and mocked. A darkness that demanded to hold my gaze just so that it could gaze right back at me. I poured another whiskey. Brought it to my mouth, then took a deep swig when through the distorting lens of the bottom of the glass. I saw a blurry, dark figure standing in front of me. I was paralyzed. The whiskey slopped against my teeth and burned my tongue, but I didn't dare swallow. I didn't dare move. I just watched as the shadowy figure towered, motionless, challenging me to react. An eternity passed in between the poundings of my heart. The vapor of the whiskey almost tickled my nostrils, and in that moment of lapsed concentration, the shadowy figure charged at me, 
I screamed and flailed, sending my glass shattering against the nearby wall. But then, nothing. In the instant that our gaze had broken, the figure was gone. I stood, panting and breathless, my heart beating so loud I couldn't hear. I was sweating burnt adrenaline and shaking so hard my teeth were chattering. I brought my hand up, and grabbing a handful of hair, I collapsed backwards against the cupboard and slid to the floor. If not believing was the key to not seeing these things, then I was doomed forever. Gavro was right. He must have been. These ghosts were already here, and I just let them out. But what did they want? I don't know how long I sat there for. It felt like hours. Soon, though, I found my composure and got the courage to stand up. I poured another whiskey, but the shadows were still there. In every alcove and nook and cranny of furniture, there was another drape of shadow waiting to pounce. I had to get out of that place right then. I wandered the streets until I found an internet cafe that was open until late. Better still, they too had whiskey. I wasn't really paying attention to what I was doing, just blind, meaningless surfing of anything that came to mind. Given the evening I'd had, pictures of kittens were a central theme. However, through my aimless Googling, one particular results page came up. Result one, as usual, was a wiki article. I figured there was no harm in reading it in case anyone ever asked, so I clicked it. I felt my stomach lurch and my heart sink. I fumbled for my phone and dialed 911. I knew where Jake was. I just hoped I was in time. 911, what's your emergency? By the time I got to the hospital, the police were already there. I should have known there was no way that the hospital staff would let me see Jake, but the police were very eager to talk to me. My tongue couldn't keep pace with my brain and the gargled mess of questions that I barraged the police with were barely coherent. An officer I hadn't met before raised an authoritative hand to silence me. Please, sir, follow me. We have some further questions. Is he alright? Sir, if you'd just please follow me. I was ushered into a small room and sat down on a squeaky and uncomfortable chair. The officer took his place behind the desk. What the hell was this room? What kind of a hospital had an interrogation room? The officer was not one I recognized. He certainly wasn't with the two who questioned me earlier. He was older, and he was also harder, more experienced. His stony face revealed nothing of his intentions or how much he knew and I imagined that, unlike the two rookies who questioned me earlier, I wasn't going to find out one damn thing he didn't want me to know. 
You're Jake's teacher, correct? The one who placed the call. Yes, that's me. Is Jake all right? No, but he will survive. I couldn't tell whether to be relieved or not. The officer's poker face refused to let slip anything that could calm my fears for Jake. But he's alive. Yes. Now tell me, how did you know where to find Jake? How did you know he'd be here? It was a guess. Something your officers asked me about earlier. He held my gaze, revealing nothing and taunting me into carrying on. Your officers, that is, I... The infrasound. Yes, this ghost noise of yours. He interrupted with the tone of a man sick of entertaining the idea that there was anything at play here other than an off-the-rails kid in trouble. However, there was the faintest flicker of doubt in his eyes, as though he'd seen something he couldn't reconcile with his foregone conclusion. The infrasound interferes with your eye's lens. It makes you see things that aren't there. Terrible things. Jake's text about turning off the noise made me think that he was still seeing them, and that maybe that had something to do with his disappearance. The officer remained stoic. I had no doubt that this was a man who was well-versed in allowing criminals to hang themselves with their words, with nothing other than the blunt force of silence. Then, this morning, your officers were talking to me about things that were in Jake's search history. Most of it was unsurprising given the nature of the vision and the nature of him being a 15-year-old boy. Then they mentioned some medical terms he'd also been searching for. At first, I figured they were from his mom, as she's a nurse. And I didn't see any connection between them and the infrasonic visions. Still, nothing. The officer was going to wait until I told him everything before he played his hand in return. Out of curiosity, I googled the ones I hadn't heard of. The faintest twitch disturbed the officer's rigid gaze. Phacomulsification is a form of eye surgery based on using ultrasound to break up cataracts. I saw Jake's logic straight away. I'd screwed up his eyes using infrasound, so maybe he thought he could fix them using ultrasound. I knew with his mom working here he'd know the layout and maybe even have the means to gain access to the relevant wards. That was when I called you. Now please, tell me what happened to Jake. At this point, my mind was almost at breaking point. I needed to know what was happening. The officer took his time to consider revealing what he knew. Eventually, he leaned in close and said softly, Jake Tandy blinded himself using the ultrasonic equipment in the ophthalmology lab. I don't know whether that was what he intended to do, but, but that was the result. My jaw dropped. He directed two focused waves of ultrasound into each eye and destroyed the lens and retina. Nurses found him curled up by the still-running machine. 
When they tried to approach him, he lashed out at the sound of their footsteps and screamed to be left alone. He calmed down as soon as he heard their voices and sobbed apologies for his outburst, saying, I thought you were them. The nurses said he kept repeating, they're gone, I can't see them, they're gone, I can't see them, as they took him to intensive care. He was smiling. I was going to be sick. I'm so sorry, Jake. I truly am. I never intended for any of this. Please believe me. Willie? Is he? I stammered. As I said, he will live, but there's no way to save his sight, and he'll need extensive therapy. At this point, the officer leaned in closer. He had the same look of steely authority on his face that Richard had when he originally questioned me about the other affected pupils. He was mentally searching for something, anything that could be used to pin this on me. But he was falling short. There were no regulations in place regarding infrasound, even in a concentrated experiment, so they couldn't even charge me with professional misconduct, let alone assault. I was free to go. Instead, he simply held my gaze and asked in a bullying tone, You got anything else to tell me? There were hundreds of things I wanted to tell him. Jake was right. I wanted to tell him we were both being stalked by the shadowy beings. I wanted to tell him that my apartment was an inhospitable orgy of demonic chaos. But I didn't. At this point, I must have looked insane enough without the truth making things worse. I simply whimpered. No. <laughs> like a kicked puppy. In that case, you're free to go, but look, he said, softening his tone momentarily. If you think of anything else, here's my number. I was walking out of the hospital towards the parking lot when a thought hit me like a brick. Amy! I'd failed Jake, and for that... I could never forgive myself, but I could still save Amy. Oh, please let me be in time to save Amy. I immediately called the detective. I'm still at the hospital. Can you meet me downstairs? I've thought of someone you need to speak to. When the officer arrived in the cold, comforting, well-lit hospital reception area, I told him, You need to send someone to check on Amy Sunderland. She went home complaining of headaches, and she also complained of seeing the same shadows long after the experiment finished. I don't see any reports of a uh, missing Amy Sunderland. She's not missing. She's at home. Her father collected her from school today. Listen, I appreciate your concern, but I can't send officers over to someone's house to see if a 15-year-old girl has recovered from a headache. Just please send someone. I don't know her address, but her parents are Lydia and Jim Sunderland. I think she might be in danger. She reported exactly the same symptoms as Jake, just a few hours behind. 
If she's following the same path, then we might not have long to prevent the same thing happening again. Please! The officer fell silent. This wasn't the same authoritative silence he'd used to intimidate me during questioning. This was the genuine sound of indecision. He'd had a difficult night. Just because Jake had been found didn't mean his case was closed, and the officer still had the task of discovering how a 15-year-old boy had been able to get access to hospital equipment and blind himself. He took his time weighing up whether he could justify sending officers to check on the girl given the crime scene at the hospital. My face must have swayed him. After all, the only reason Jake was found was because of my hunch, so he figured it was better to be safe than sorry. He pulled the walkie-talkie to his mouth. Send a car around to check on the house of Lydia and James Sunderland. Crackled a male voice on the other end. Lydia and Jim Sunderland, parents of Amy Sunderland. Sir, I, I don't understand. You want another car sent there? Came the voice, still seeking clarification. What do you mean, another? Two cars already visited this evening, sir, accompanying the ambulance, in order to assess the scene and question the parents. The professional facade the man had put on this morning was dying in front of me. His ashen face looked ready to crumble as the implications sunk in. He looked like he wanted to shoot me away in case I overheard important information. But he didn't. What happened? He quizzed the still nonplussed radio operator. Sorry, sir. I thought you knew. They don't allow phones in the hospital. I haven't been updated on anything for an hour or so. Tell me. Sir, Amy Sunderland was found dead in her room this evening. She bled to death after clawing her eyes out. Her parents left her sleeping off a migraine to go to the movies and found her when they returned. My world broke. I'd failed Jake. I'd failed Amy. I'd failed everyone. I don't even know what happened next. In a mindless daze, I drifted home. It was going on midnight by this point, barely 48 hours since I'd found that damned article. Two days ago, I'd been a self-pitying teacher with a tough class and a lack of balls. I now had the weight of Jake's sight and Amy's life crushing me. Through the aimless glaze that was my vision, I stumbled home. I didn't care. In the shadows, in the streets, in the bushes, in the alleys, between the cars seemed thicker, almost solid, tangible. They seemed to reach for me, grasp me, touch me, grab me. I 
bare skin at times. Chilled scratches ran up my arms and down my neck. But I didn't care. When I got to my door, I opened it and looked into my shadowy dwelling. The darkness here was alive now. I could feel it. At this point, I don't think even turning the lights on could have dissipated the sea of writhing blackness that engulfed my home. It pulsed and swayed and seemed to breathe as I stared into it. It wasn't just figures anymore. It was dozens of them. All dancing and mocking and taunting and begging me to join them. Inky black tendrils snaked out of the doorway and over the hallway walls like the branches of some foul tree growing and producing some fouler fruit. Snakes of writhing black snuck across the floor towards my feet. Whatever I'd brought forth with my little science lesson wasn't going away and wasn't going to let me go. It still had another 30 kids to claim from my mistake. I could think of nothing else to save them. So as the horrific fingers of whatever lived in those shadows continued to climb up my legs, I simply walked in and closed the door behind me. I didn't care. I'm sorry. I hope you enjoyed our full cast production of Ultrasound, as written by Kevin Scarjo Thomas and starring Jesse Cornett. Up next, we've got another tale for you. This one a runner-up in one of our monthly writing contests, written by Anne Tran and starring Alicia Pavlis, with supporting performances from Sariana Gregg and Todd Farrell. In it, we'll meet a woman who is madly in love with her colleague, to her chagrin, however, he seems to be smitten by a beautiful young patient at the hospital they both work at. So, she does what any sensible person would do. She plots to kill the girl. Will her diabolical plan succeed? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you, Red as Blood, Black as Night. I am not a woman that many would call insecure. Oh no, I know just how beautiful I am. It is no secret. I've seen the looks that men give me as I walk past them. Some would call me vain, narcissistic even. And yet, I fail to see how it is a felony to realize one's own attractiveness. If anything, beauty is advantageous and only with the proper awareness of it can a woman exploit its full potential. But this child, 
This stupid little girl has stolen something that belongs to me. She has taken and destroyed everything I ever worked for. The girl came to the institution several months ago, brought here by her father. The wretched thing was traumatized into silence after the untimely death of her mother. The man believed that the doctors here at the sanatorium could cure her, or so he said. It was obvious that the man wanted nothing to do with the child. After his beloved wife's death, he had lost his way. I could smell the alcohol on his breath as he spoke. How pitiful. But I had no sympathy for her. She was barely 13 when she arrived, a small, fragile girl with large, round eyes, empty of emotion. She spent her hours staring vacantly at the walls of her plain room. When she was outside, she could usually be found quietly picking flowers in the gardens. She gave the doctors and nurses no trouble, no reason to give her any of the aggressive treatments. She was obedient. If she had started talking again, well, she probably could have functioned just fine in the outside world. But alas, no one leaves the asylum once they have arrived. Her father knew that. I wonder if she did too. But I wanted her gone. I loathed her very presence. For you see, she had robbed me. Robbed me of him. We met in graduate school, Henry and I. I was a biochemist, and he was in medical school. A psychiatrist in training. I loved him and he loved me. I was certain of it, though it was difficult to tell sometimes with him. Henry was not a man of many emotions and he was one of even fewer words. His singular passion was his work, but I loved him. He was mine and mine alone. No one else but I could be with a man as handsome as he. No one else but I deserved a man like him. But the girl, the stupid, pathetic little witch. Henry was fond of her. Often he talked of her in my presence, chatting about how much progress she had made since she arrived, about how well she was eating and how much better she was responding. He would tell me with such enthusiasm about how she was finally talking and mumbling words to him. I suppose it should be natural for a psychiatrist like him to be thrilled by a patient's progress, but I could see, I could tell that there was more, that she was more than just his patient. No, Henry was more than just fond of her. I almost never see a genuine smile grace his face, and now I will only see it when he is reminded of that girl. Oh, I hated her. I envied the attention he gave her. I despised her for taking all of his time. I did not understand then. I did not understand why she garnered all of his attention. Now, now I know why. Why Henry was so infatuated with her. The child was undeniably beautiful. How is it that a daft little thing like her was blessed with such beauty? I loathed her. I envied her. I wanted to scratch lines of blood red into her porcelain white skin, to seize her midnight black hair between my fingers and tear it from her scalp, to wrap my hands around her throat and strangle her 
kill her. Yes. Yes. Yes, I wanted to kill her. But I could not have the girl's blood taint my hands. No, no, no. Henry would never forgive me if he knew. So I devised a plan. A plan so brilliant that the devil himself would be proud. You see, I have worked at the asylum for many years and I have seen many accidents, even fatal ones. Numerous ones were due to failed experiments, of course, but there were also accidents that were simply attributable to misfortune. Ah, yes, the foolish ones that go wandering from their rooms at night, drifting through the cold and cruel hallways only to be found dead in the morning light, murdered in a passionate fervor at the hands of a criminally insane inmate. That is the kind of death I wanted her to suffer for the misery she caused me. Now, there was a patient at the asylum that everyone unconsciously avoided, probably because of his reputation, but mostly due to the aura around him. I do not know his exact history, but per the albeit incomplete account I could discern from his records, the man was charged with the brutal murder of several young men. All of his victims were found with their bodies and faces mutilated beyond recognition. Of course, he could have been tried and sentenced to death for his crimes, but the man pleaded that he had no memory of the murders, no memory at all of such ruthless killings. Cain was his name. He was insane. Wonderfully and perfectly insane. Cain was not a difficult man to seduce. It was easy, laughably simple even, to plant the seed of my plan in his head, with his violent tendencies and obsessions suppressed with drugs and treatments. The man was docile. But even then, I knew that he could not resist a gift such as I was offering, served to him on a silver platter. That morning, I sat with him outside on the steps leading out into the garden. I was ever so kind to him, ever so gentle as we spoke. But then I saw Henry, kneeling in the grass beside that girl, that little witch, with a smile on his face, a smile that I thought was reserved only for me, something I thought was mine and mine alone. Oh, the fury rose from within, my blood boiled and I clenched my fists angrily. No, no more. I could not take it. I would have preferred death to witnessing another second of the horror. It had to go. It had to die. Cain spoke to me and I snapped at him in my rage. I was no longer kind and gentle, but a vicious snake bearing its venomous fangs. But wait, no, I had to remember. Had to calm myself, had to be patient. Soon, I had to remind myself, soon it will be gone. I turned to Cain again and spoke in a soothing and tender manner once more, gesturing to the pair sitting amongst the flowers. It disgusts me. I was oh so careful though, oh so careful as I weaved my words so that it was Cain who suggested the deed. It was he who planned the act and he who carried it out. The plot was brilliant, simply brilliant, 
and no one would ever make the connection between me and its demise. So that night, moments before midnight, I opened my office door ever so quietly and stepped into the empty hall. I walked to its room, my steps so soft, and when I reached the metal door, I pushed it open quietly, silently. And there it was, its hair as black as night, its lips as red as blood, its skin as white as snow. Oh, I didn't wake you, did I? It stared at me, and I stared back, my fury and anger growing and growing with each passing second. I could take it no more. I wanted to pounce on it with a scream, encircle its neck with my hands and throttle it. But no, I could not. There was a plan. I needed to follow the plan. I smiled at it, softly, pleasantly, and told it that Henry wanted to see it in the gardens. He smiled a beautiful, wretched smile before dashing out the open door. It believed me. That naive little thing believed me. Oh, that poor, trusting little creature. What a fate awaited it in the garden. Oh, I must be oh so wicked to deceive it like that. Deceive, yes, but I did not lie to it. Henry was in the gardens, or at least outside. He often took midnight strolls around the hospital grounds before returning to his books. Perhaps he would be the first to find its mangled corpse. Surely he would be sad, distraught even, at its death. But he would get over it. Henry had lost patience to accidents before. I shut the door behind me and returned to my office. I had slipped a set of keys to Kane earlier that evening, a set that I had snatched from a careless nurse. Kane had four hours to end its life, four hours before the nurses began their rounds and found the body. It would be written off as an accident, a thoughtless mistake that ended tragically. Kane would not get away with it as easily as I would. With the number of murders and the amount of blood on his hands, he would be next on the list of experiments. Perhaps he would get away with nothing more than a lobotomy. That would probably be the most merciful outcome for him. Oh, I was certain that he would prattle once he found out his sentence. He would scream to the world that I told him to do it, that I slipped him the keys and got the girl out of the room. But no one would believe him. Oh, I could barely contain my excitement. In mere hours, I would be rid of it forever. It would never again bother or vex me, never haunt me with its beauty. I would be the only woman in Henry's eyes, the most beautiful woman in his life. With just two hours left, I could not bear the wait. Perhaps Cain had done it already. Perhaps he had already finished the deed. The thing was small and weak compared to him, and surely it would not have taken him long to overpower it. No matter, I simply could not sit there and twiddle my thumbs any longer. 
I stepped out of my office and nearly sprinted down the hall to his room. And sure enough, I found him there. He was drenched in blood and huddled in the smallest corner of the room with a maddening smile on his face. I felt the same smile pulling upon my lips. The sight of its blood covering his once white shirt filled me with delight. It's done, he said. It's done. What did you do with the body? I asked. Nothing. He replied. I left it in the garden. I hope you don't mind. I know how much you like its face. <laughs> but I still bashed its head into the wall. No. You have done me a great service, Cain. I brought you a gift. He said, offering me something wrapped in a crimson drenched cloth. I walked towards him, taking the present from his hands. He had wrapped it in what used to be a dark, maroon-striped tie. One that looked oddly like the one Henry owned. Where did you get this tie? I asked. It had it, he replied. So Henry had given it his tie. My vision grew red, and I began to unwrap the round thing, pulling the strips of silk cloth away slowly. And now, there, there in my grasp was a heart. Its heart. Her heart. Oh, how beautiful it was. How perfect it was. Oh, how large it was for a body so small. Oh, oh, it no longer mattered that it had Henry's tie, for I held its heart in my grasp. I tossed my head back in a soundless laugh and then leaned down to kiss Cain on the forehead. My friend, you have given me such a great gift. I left the room, eager to play with my prize. Perhaps I would submerge it in embalming fluid and keep it as a trophy. Ah, but then Henry would ask me where I got such a fine specimen. Perhaps I would cook and eat it. Then its essence would become mine. Henry would find me even more desirable. Ah, yes, that is definitely what I would do. What would make me more beautiful than to eat the heart of a beautiful creature? I went to my office and hid the heart in the filing cabinets under piles of paper. No one would search there. No one would suspect me. That was when I heard a distant scream of absolute terror. Oh, joy, someone had found its body. I straightened my dress and smoothed my hair before stepping out of the office into the hall. A nurse passed by and I followed her. I asked her about what had occurred and she told me that there was a body found outside in the gardens in the flower patch. I was prepared for this prepared for this moment. My shocked expression must have been oh so convincing. Oh, to have seen my own acting, my own expression. I followed the nurse down the hall as she rambled on and on, praying to the skies above. She suspected nothing. Nothing of the fact that it was I who led that body there. 
that indeed it was I who was the mastermind behind this. No one would ever suspect me. Giddily, I imagined the moments to come, seeing its porcelain face torn and marred with crimson red, its luscious midnight black hair tangled with dirt and mud, and its blood-red lips pale and blue with death. How ugly it would be in death. It would vex me no longer. We rushed out of the building to find a crowd of people standing around the flower patch. I could hear the wailing of the nurses and doctors as they cried and moaned over its death. What's going on? There, there it was. The mangled, twisted corpse oh, oh, lying on the ground. Disgusting. Somebody I felt the excitement rushing through my limbs. The exhilaration of victory. I had won. I had won. I had won. I slowed, savoring my victory as I slowly approached the corpse. The lush green grass was bathed in dark red blood and there were tatters of white cloth strewn around. I stopped at the foot of the corpse and took in the figure from bottom to top. This was it. This was the moment that I had waited for. Black dress shoes, gray trousers, ripped and drenched in red, a pale blue dress shirt torn open and covered, covered in blood, so much so that the fabric had turned black. In the center of its chest was a hole, a black hole where the heart should have been. And there, that was where the face should be. It was so disfigured, so crushed and destroyed, but yet it was possible to discern. It was not the girl. It was not. Cain did not kill the girl. No, 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 no! I screamed a primal, guttural scream, dropping to my knees before the battered corpse. It was Henry. I hope you enjoyed our full cast production of Red is Blood, Black is Night as written by Anne Tran and starring Alicia Pavlis. Up next, we've got one final terrifying tome for you, as adapted by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's creator, Craig Groshek, from a text message-based narrative from Robert Strait. Our production co-stars Joseph Gable, and once again, the very talented Alicia Pavlis, and features supporting performances from Brendan Hurlbert, K.M. Summerall, and Heather Ordover. In it, we'll meet a young woman living out a claustrophobic nightmare as she finds herself trapped in an elevator with her only connection to the outside world, a cell phone with poor reception. And as we'll soon discover, my friends, this is no ordinary elevator. And you can push all the buttons you want, but it has its own plans. Without further ado, I present to you going down.
Hey, Jill. Sorry, I was away from my phone. What's wrong? Thank God you answered your phone. Nate, I need help. Okay, okay. What's the matter? It just keeps going down. You have to call 911. I can't. I'm so scared. Help me, please. Um, what? The elevator won't stop. I've been going down for 45 minutes and I can't call anyone. Whoa, hold on. Maybe you'd better start from the beginning. I got on the elevator in my building and I hit the button for basement. It hasn't stopped. I've been on here since two o'clock and it still says it's going down. I can't call the police, I've tried. It says call disconnected every time. I can't call anyone. I tried texting all my contacts too and it says message not sent every time for everyone except for you. So please call 911 for me and tell them I'm trapped. Is this a joke? No, you jerk. I'm stuck. I'm sorry. Nate, this isn't a joke, okay? I really need your help. Please, please call the police. Why would I ask you to call the police on myself? This isn't a joke. Okay, okay. Hold on. 911, what's your emergency? I just called the police and told them someone is stuck in the elevator in your building. Just stay calm, okay? Have you tried pressing the stop button? Maybe that will let you out. <laughs> oh god. What's going on, Nate? The elevator's been going down for almost an hour. I keep smelling horrible things on each floor. I'm sure it's just broken. You aren't really moving. It's just showing like you are. No. No, I can feel the elevator moving. The lights at the top get down to B, and they just start back over at 17, the top floor, and keep going down. Try pressing a button for one of the other floors. Okay. so full of it right now, Jill. You scared the hell out of me. I told the police your name and apartment number, so good luck explaining that when they get there. Nate, this isn't a joke. I'm really scared of the police here yet. This cannot be real. Please, Nate. I don't know what to do. I don't want to die. Please, this is really happening to me. You have to believe me. Please, Nate. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. You aren't Jill. You're some chick that stole her phone. Get lost, freak. No, 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 Nate, it's me. It's really me. Look, how else would I know that you and I got drunk and made out on New Year's last year even though you were still with Jennifer and we agreed not to talk about it? 
How would I know that if it wasn't me? Please believe me. Please. <sighs> Whoa. If you are pulling my leg, Jill, we're through. Do you hear me? I'm seriously not messing with you, Nate. I don't know why this is happening to me, but I've never been so scared in my life. What is going on? Please, you have to help me. <laughs> Try pressing the stop button. Try going back up. Which floor? Top floor, 17. Oh, thank God. Nate, I'm moving back up. I'm already on floor. Jill? Jill, are you there? Jill? Jill? Yes, hello. This is Nate Baumgartner. Yes, the same Nate that called earlier. Yes. Yes, I know. I know you're looking into it. Look, would you just listen to me for a minute? Okay. Listen, my friend Jill was on the phone with me this whole time, and she's trapped in that elevator going down, and she's been in there for hours. And she just got cut off after saying she was attacked by some weird animal or something, and her phone just went all static. No. No. No, the call didn't drop. I can still hear the static. Listen, here. See? My phone says it's still connected, but she hasn't come back yet. Okay. Okay. Jesus, sorry I bothered you. I know. I know you're already investigating. Please hurry and get there. My friend needs help. Wait, what? You've already been there. When? For how long? Well, Jesus, why didn't you call me to tell me? I've been sitting here waiting. What? Yeah, right. You've got to be kidding me. She's not in there? Are you sure you had the right building? The right elevator? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you. I'll let you know if I hear back from her. <sighs> oh. What is going on? Some kind of joke. 
Oh God, something got on with me. It, it looked like a skeleton with flesh rotting off. The, the elevator stopped at 17. The doors opened and it got on. It was in here with me, Nate. Oh good, I, I don't know what it was. I can't, I can't. <laughs> it, it pressed the button to, to go back down to four, then got off. The elevator won't go higher than 17. I don't want the doors to open again. <laughs> this is screwed up, Jill. I just called the police back and they said they checked all the elevators and no one is stuck. I'm coming over there right now. Please, hurry! Ah! Oh my god, something just kicked the door really hard and dented it in! Nate! Oh my god, what do I do? Leave me alone! Go away! What do you want from me? He tried to open the doors! to push the basement button again. Why is this happening to me? here. Jill, I'm here. The police are on the other line asking about where you live. I told them that I called and we're coming up to your apartment right now. Number 1505, right? Just press stop and hold the door close button. Are you okay? They, they were, they, they were in here. Two of them came in. They, they looked like giant roaches. They were inside my head. They were inside my head. I wanted to fight them. They played with me like a puppet. So much blood. Oh, my head hurts. I think. I think they were eating my brain. I, but they got out. Oh, so hard to remember. Please hurry. My phone is low on signal. Jill, you are freaking me out. I showed the officer the text you sent me and they said that we were playing a prank. We went to your door and it wasn't there. Your door is gone. There is no room 1505 anymore. Just a blank wall. I was at your place two months ago, Jill. What the hell is going on? I hear a lot of screaming now. 
I think I'm getting close to the bottom. It sounds like rushing coming up from below. Tell my mom I love her. Jill, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going back downstairs. The cops told me to meet their sergeant in the lobby. I won't let them leave until we find you. Just hang on. No, 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 no. Hello? Jill? Jill, you there? Jill! Please talk to me. Hello? God damn it! No, 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 no! Jill! Jill, you there? Hello? God damn it! Siri, call Jill. Calling Jill. Damn it! Call Jill. Ah! Call mom. Calling mom. Nathaniel? Well, hello. How are you, honey? Mom, I need help. No! What the hell? Siri, call Luke. Calling Luke. Nay! <laughs> Buddy, how's it going? Luke, help me! What is going on? Damn it! Stupid phone! Call Kyle! Calling Kyle. Come on, Kyle, pick up, pick up, pick up! Come on, Kyle, pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up! God damn it! No, 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 come on, come on, come on! No! Fuck! Calling Sam, mobile. Thank God. Sam, Sam, don't hang up. Don't hang up. Please help me. Whoa, whoa, hey. <laughs> Calm down, dude. What's up? What's going on? Oh, thank God, Sam. I'm so glad I was able to reach you. I'm in an elevator, and it's just going down. But I'm stuck. And all the lights are out. You have to call 911 for me. Please, you need to... Hello? Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. you enjoyed going down as adapted by Craig Groshek from a text-based story from Robert Street and starring Alicia Pavlis and Joseph Gable. I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight. If you enjoyed this episode's full cast productions, you're in for a treat with the launch of our new season coming soon, which will feature all new full cast productions of amazing original tales written just for us by extremely talented authors. Until then, check out our previous podcast episodes, as well as the audio archives on our website and YouTube channel, and see what else you may have been missing over the past eight years. There's a lot to love, and you've got a lot of catching up to do. Also, just a reminder, 
If you haven't already, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube and hit the bell notification icon to ensure you never miss a new release. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free, including extended editions of many of our podcasts. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.